0: Over 30 years ago, in fact in February 1976, my father and I, along with two colleagues, set out on a long and, as it turned out, very hazardous journey to drive and deliver a new Mercedes minibus from England to a mission school in Nepal. After crossing the channel by ferry, we drove through Europe and then into northern Turkey, unprepared for the fact that it was winter. And at over 8,000 feet high, your fuel freezes and 10-foot-high snowdrifts block the roads. Eventually, we struggle through and into Iran, pausing for a day in the beautiful city of Mashhad before entering Afghanistan. We travel between the three main cities of Herat, Kandahar and Kabul through desert, desert terrain, with little signs of life except the occasional nomadic settlements. We left the country via the breathtaking but dangerous Kabul Gorge and entered into Pakistan through the famous but much less spectacular Khyber Pass. Then we travelled through Pakistan and North India on the famous Grand Trent Road, encountering traffic of all kinds, not just mechanised but ox and camel carts and even on one alarming occasion an elephant running towards us as we reversed at speed. Finally, after a diversion to see the Taj Mahal in Agra, we entered Nepal for what was the most hazardous part of all. A whole day just travelling a few miles over numerous hairpin bends over a 9,500 foot pass into Nepal with drops of hundreds of feet down the terraces on either side. Finally, after 7,300 miles, 26 days, we descended into Kathmandu Valley and delivered the minibus, which along with us was thankfully in one piece. Mission accomplished. Well, today we conclude our year-long journey in the New Testament book of Acts as the spreading flame, the torch of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is carried on its last leg of its journey to the city of Rome by the Apostle Paul. In fact, this journey began a quarter of a century before in another great capital city, Jerusalem, where the risen Jesus gave a commission to his followers in words which we've adopted for our verse of the year. Acts 1, verse 8, in full says, "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It is a commission or command. But notice something else that I want to highlight this morning. It is not only a command, but it is also a prediction or promise. The Sri Lankan Christian Ajit Fernando, in the NIV Commentary on Acts, writes as follows. At the start of Acts, Luke gives his key verse, Acts 1.8, which predicted that through the Holy Spirit, the gospel would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. The book ends with that prediction being fulfilled. And so this morning, as we conclude our series, and this is number 43 for those who have been following, uh, we want to focus on that theme. For as we've seen, although God fulfills his promise through human agency, through people like Peter, Philip, Paul, and hundreds of unnamed Christians, it is ultimately God himself who fulfills his plans, who keeps his promise. So, the title I've chosen for this is, promise fulfilled. So, will you turn in your Bibles to the final chapter again of Acts? Acts 28, it's page 1126 in the Pew Bibles. Let's pick up where Rachel left off with the children's talk and we'll read verse 17 through to the end. Just backtracking maybe to verse 16. When we got to Rome... Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said. But others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. This ends the reading. This ends the book of Acts. So look with me before we come around the Lord's table in a little while at this final chapter. You'll see in the NIV that it's divided into three paragraphs, this final chapter. Of course, when Luke wrote this, there were no chapter numbers, no verse numbers, and no paragraphs. But it's quite helpful. L- let me explain where we're going. You can follow with me. Uh, first of all, we see the months on Malta, verses 1 to 10. Then finally, the road to Rome, verses 11 to 16, and last of all, Luke focuses on the preaching of Paul in verses 17 to 31. So, let's look at these together. First of all, the months on Malta in verses 1 to 10. If you were here last Sunday evening, we saw in our series that this sea journey they planned to take of just 40 miles along the coast of Cyprus to get to a better harbour turned out to be a terrifying two-week storm at sea ending with a shipwreck. Uh, some suggestions have been made to place the place where they landed or were shipwrecked uh, in other parts of the world, such as off the coast of what is now Dubrovnik in Croatia. But it's almost certain that the island of Malta is the correct location and what is now called St. Paul's Bay, if you've ever been on holiday to Malta. And this is a place where 276 passengers finally make it to land. Uh, The island of Malta had been conquered by the Romans 250 years before, but the inhabitants were Phoenician by background, a seafaring people, and they spoke a language called Punic or a dialect of it. If you look at verse 2, the NIV translates the people as islanders. In fact, the Greek word translated islanders is the word from which we get barbarian. Uh, And that wasn't a derogatory term. The Greeks thought everybody who didn't speak their language just went bar 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 bar, so they called them barbarians. And it's nothing to do, of course, with rugby teams as well, for those are wondering about that. Anyway, these natives, thankfully, are very friendly and welcoming, and they build a fire, or you can imagine many fires on the beach uh, for these bedraggled survivors that come ashore. It's very interesting, the Apostle Paul doesn't sit down and say, well, I've got you through this storm and uh, just bring me a bowl of hot soup when you've got it organized and uh, I'll sit near the fire warming my hands. No, he's there gathering sticks. And as he gathers sticks, he picks up by mistake a snake among them. Maybe, maybe it was pretty cold and frozen. In our family, we once kept snakes. We won't go there in any detail. But uh, if you've ever kept snakes, that in cold weather they do tend to get rather stiff, and you sometimes think they've passed out. But no, they're just uh, whatever the correct word is uh, that snakes do. And uh, as Paul puts it on the fire, this snake obviously the warmth revives it, and it grabs and bites into his hand or his wrist. And uh, when the local people see what is happening, they all immediately draw the wrong conclusion. They say this man, although he survived the shipwreck, he must be a murderer. And they say the goddess Justice, they had a goddess who was supposed to be the daughter of Zeus and Themis in Greek mythology. Justice has finally got him. He thought he'd got away with it, but no, he hasn't. He's about to die. Paul, however, is totally unconcerned and shakes the snake off into the fire. Notice then, Paul's continuing source of security. His source of security is still in the promise of God. Rachel reminded us in the children's talk that this promise had been given to him when he was at his lowest ebb in Caesarea. If you've been in the series way back there, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. So Paul knows whatever happens, my destination is Rome. And then it had been reiterated at the height of this terrible storm, an angel of the Lord had stood before him and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So, therefore, his security is in the protection of God. Even if a poisonous snake bites him, he shakes it off into the fire, he suffers no ill effects. Why? Because he knows he will not die of snake bite or or, or malta. He's going to make it ultimately to Rome. He can rely on God's word. And the simple message for us this morning is, if we belong to God as Paul said he did, if we serve the God that Paul said he served, then we too can rely on the promise of God. That's why I chose that hymn. It's a wonderful hymn. When you're going through tough times, how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. God has promised in his word. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians never die at sea. Christians never die of snake bite. But it means that God has made his promise and that in Christ alone we are eternally secure. Our lives and times are in his hands and they're safely there until we leave this life which may be by a snake bite or as in Paul's case a few years later by a sword bite on his neck. So Paul is preserved and the natives are amazed. Uh, Some have questioned this story by the way on the basis that if you know anything about Malta there are no poisonous snakes on Malta. It doesn't mean there weren't once poisonous snakes on Malta. There were at one time poisonous snakes on Ireland as well, and on Aaron apparently, but there aren't any more. You'll be glad to know if you're going holiday there. Uh, certainly, the people of Malta expect him to die. They recognise the snake and they think he's been bitten and he's going to die. Uh, and when he doesn't die, their opinion of him switches. One minute is a murderer, next minute is a god. <laughs> if you remember the story way back on the first missionary journey, when they got to Lystra, you remember the people there had a complete switch of opinion in the opposite direction. First of all, they thought Paul and Barnabas were gods and started worshipping them. The story ends with Paul being stoned, almost killed by the inhabitants. Just a reminder to us that don't be taken in by the praise or the criticism of those who don't know the Lord. So, Paul's security is in that God has brought him here, but this is not his ultimate destination. However, he doesn't sit there and say, well... My destination is to appear before Caesar in Rome. And so I'm going to take a break from Christian witness here. The people of Malta are not my target group. Sorry. They're not my God-given audience. No, as always, as he was on the ship, as he has always been, we see Paul's continuing witness in verses 7 to 10. Uh, The survivors, I don't imagine the leading man on the island invited all 276 of them to stay there. Uh, But certainly Paul was there and the leading people, probably the centurion and the ship's captain and a few others, are invited to the estate of this chief official, a man with a Roman name called Publius, who welcomes them and gives them hospitality for a few days. And while they're there, they discover that the father of Publius is sick with fever and literally, same Greek word, he's suffering with dysentery. Uh, When you read books on these kind of things, you discover all sorts of interesting facts which aren't particularly uh, important, but they're just interesting. So, apparently, there is a microbe in goat's milk on Malta which was discovered in 1875, long after this happened. And uh, the symptoms last for months and even years. Of course, Paul and Dr. Luke, even with his medical background, didn't know about the cause of that. But he did know about the solution. So, notice we see Paul ministering to the sick. Paul went in to see him, And after prayer, he placed his hands on him and healed him. And when news of this spreads, the whole people of the island bring all their sick people and find healing. Verse 9, when this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. Now, all of this has echoes of Luke's first volume. You remember when Jesus started out on his ministry. Paul is ministering like Jesus. Luke records in Luke 4.40. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Where the gospel goes out, and especially for the first time, ministry of the word, which Luke doesn't highlight in Malta, though you can hardly imagine Paul kept his mouth shut during this period. uh, Paul uh, is accompanied by ministry to the sick in body and mind. So, for Paul, these months on Malta are months of ministry. Again, it's a reminder that wherever we are, whatever our circumstances, if we belong to the same God that Paul belonged to, if we follow the same Saviour he served, then no matter what your circumstances are today, you are still an ongoing witness for Jesus Christ. And it's often through the storms, through the difficulties, through the unexpected, that our witness shines all the more brightly if we're alert and willing to serve the Lord in that way. So, finally, they winter over in Malta for three months. The winds are contrary during this period. Nobody sailed at this time in the ancient world, certainly that part of the world. All the ships put into port. And finally, probably in late February, early March, the winds change and it's time to move on. And the party, as they leave, are given a warm send-off by the inhabitants and given provisions for the journey. And, of course, Paul has ever, ever since then been held in very high esteem, probably, too high esteemed by the people of Malta if you visit there there's a fantastic tourist industry based on the fact that Paul visited that island so now we come then secondly to the final stages of the journey the road to Rome uh, Paul, the journey that Paul set out on from Caesarea to Rome is about 2,000 miles, he's still got another f- almost 500 to go from here to get there uh, and there are four stages in the journey just look at them carefully if you're interested to see the geography of this. Uh, The centurion Julius finds another Egyptian grain ship which is wintered in Malta, probably in Valletta, the main city, and he books his soldiers and prisoners on board. Uh, Luke, great historian, gives us the detail that the ship had the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. Uh, They with their constellation sign Gemini were regarded by sailors as good luck and preservation from pirates and storms. Uh, Paul, of course, needs no such saviour gods, but he continues to trust in his living saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they travel from Malta, 80 miles across open sea, this is the dangerous bit, uh, to Syracuse in Sicily. That's about 80 miles. Then they set sail 70 more miles to Regium, which is on the toe of Italy. And then with a good wind behind them, they make really rapid progress 180 miles to Puteoli one of the main grain ports in Italy reaching there the next day and Paul and Luke and Aristarchus find fellowship there with Christian brothers they invite them to stay for a week and it's probable that Julius uh, and some of his party enjoyed the hospitality as well and then after their weeks break they're finally on the last bit of the journey now they're going to be walking on foot for 125 miles. It's one of the great Roman roads that runs right up their spine, the spine. The Appian Way. Uh, the Romans built these fantastic roads with all these staging points along the way for people to stop, you know, uh, sort of motorway service stations in the ancient world. Uh, and we see that Paul stopped at a couple of them here. Uh, but no doubt Paul was encouraged not only to find Christian brothers, but... Uh, But even more encouraged, because when they get to a stopping point um, at the Forum of Appius, it's 43 miles from Rome, and somehow the Christians in Rome have heard that Paul is coming. Maybe Aristarchus has gone on ahead, we don't know, or even Luke. Uh, Luke seems to have stayed there right to the end of the journey. But somehow they hear, now you imagine this, here's Paul, he's going to Rome, he doesn't know what's going to await him, it's the great centre of the ancient world, he's on capital charge before Caesar, could lose his life and here he is walking this long journey on this road and he gets to this place and Christians have walked 43 miles to meet him and greet him and they go down the road another 10 miles 33 miles from Rome there's another party of Christians it's like you know Paul is been welcomed as a hero as the old generals were into Rome and i want you to just think for a moment what a tremendous encouragement this must have been to the apostle paul And there's a great encouragement in Christian fellowship. Can I say that we're too ready to criticize and too slow to encourage one another sometimes? It really can be such a great encouragement to Christian leaders, to everyone. Just a word of encouragement can lift people up. And and sometimes we just take these things for granted. Uh, Rodney is actually out, as you know, looking after children. So, um, don't tell him I've told you this, but I'm going to embarrass, embarrass him here. Yesterday, Rodney spent... I think it was six well he got up at 4 a.m. and got back late in the evening Uh, Rodney and Robert there Rodney had a trailer and drove 700 miles with a trailer to Coventry to pick up a new nippy for Robert and bring him back all the way there now that's Christian encouragement isn't it (laughs) that's Christianity in practice the whole day just doing that for a Christian brother. And I know for Robert, that was a great encouragement for Robert. He's nodding his head up there, so I know that he was a great encouragement to him. But just think, I want you to think about, what are the ways you can encourage people? This Christmas time, you know, you send Christmas cards. Just a note of encouragement. I know we're all worried about if we praise people, they'll get big-headed and the glory won't go to God and all that kind of thing. You know, but there's a difference between praising someone and just saying to someone, I really thank God for you. You encouraged me today. When you pick up those kids, thanks for looking after them this morning. Take it for granted, these things. The joy of Christian encouragement. It's the encouragement of Christians walking together. We read in verse 15, At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And what, what is Christian fellowship? It is Christians walking together, is it not? And the Holy Spirit walks with us, but we don't walk alone. We're not lone rangers. I'm not a lone Granger, um, <laughs> we walk with one another, we encourage one another, uh, 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 and friends in Charlotte's Chapel, can I say, Buster, let's, just, let's do more of that, just encourage one another, especially those who are finding the going hard, what a difference it makes, doesn't it? So finally they arrive at journey's end, verse 14, Luke kind of jumps the gun of it, there's a little way to go yet, and so we went to Rome, And verse 16, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live with himself with a soldier to guard him. A normal five-week trip has taken four months. A promise made by the Lord to Paul two and a half years ago has been kept. And he's still got two more years, although he doesn't know it, before he comes to trial in Rome. So, what does he do while he's waiting in Rome to come to trial? He's under sort of lighthouse arrest with a soldier chained to him, just one instead of the normal two. What does he do? Well, we we actually know quite a lot of what Paul did. Most people believe that while Paul was here, he wrote his prison epistles. He wrote the great letters of Colossians, Ephesians and Philippians and the little letter of Philemon. But notice as Luke writes his account, what he wants to bring to our attention is what Paul did, which was his priority. So, notice finally, we're coming to the end, the preaching of Paul in verses 17 to 31. Uh, in his letter to the Christians in Rome, which Paul had written um, about two or three years before this, uh, Paul had begun that letter by describing his personal conviction about the power and scope of the gospel. Romans one sixteen is a key verse you should know by heart. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So, in keeping with his normal practice, Paul starts first to the Jew. Just three days after arriving there, Paul calls the Jewish community leaders in to meet with him. There were seven, maybe even eleven synagogues in the city of Rome. And Paul wants to defend himself, verses 17 to 22, against these accusations that have been brought against him by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And he identifies with them immediately. He says, my brothers, I'm part of you. I'm not against you. And he makes three points. John Stott in the Bible Speaks Today commentary summarizes them. What he's saying, Paul had done nothing against the Jews. The Romans had done nothing against him. And he had nothing, no charge against the Jews. And having made his statement, somewhat surprisingly, the Jewish leaders in Rome say, well, we don't know what you're talking about. Maybe the written charges against him had gone down with the ship. off Malta. We don't know. But more likely, about ten years before this, there had been a major disagreement between Christians and Jews in the city of Rome, and the, the present emperor then had kicked all the Jews out of Rome, and maybe they were afraid of the kind of communal disturbance that might occur, and so they just kind of played them and say, well, we don't know what you're talking about. But what they do say is, there's an open response, they say, we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect, Tell us what it's all about, this Christian business. And so Paul moves from defending himself to defending the faith. Verses 23 to 28. Before an even larger number of people from the Jewish community. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Would just be fascinating to have sat there, wouldn't it? For a whole day as Paul debates and interacts. He didn't just stand up, by the way, and give give a 12-hour sermon. No, he's talking and explaining, and they would interact, they would ask questions and respond, and he's trying to convince them. This work, the gospel is not only proclamation, it's also persuasion. It's a very strong word that's used in Acts, where Paul is explaining the Christian faith from the law, books of Moses, and the prophets from our Old Testament Scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and that he's brought in God's kingdom that they've been looking forward to. And this time there's a mixed response, verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. And so Luke tells us, as they're about to leave in disagreement, and there's an extra verse down the bottom in verse 29, which isn't included in most of the original text, um, Paul leaves them with a very solemn warning. It's a warning about the danger of rejecting God's word. And he refers back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 6, when Isaiah was called. It's a passage that Jesus himself used and quoted from at the end of the parable of the sower to explain why people don't respond to the Christian message. It's a warning about the danger of deaf ears, blind eyes, hardened hearts. There are none so deaf as those who will not hear, none so blind as those who will not see, none so calloused who will not be moved. Such people miss out on what God offers salvation through his son, Jesus. And the warning still stands. These are very sobering words. Not just to Jews who don't respond, but to Gentiles who don't respond. To us, if we choose to deliberately turn against the message of Jesus Christ, whenever there is the Christian message is proclaimed in this church week by week, in every church where the true gospel is proclaimed, there is always a division among those who hear. Some are convinced and believe. Others refuse to believe. And again, as I've done week after week, year after year myself in this pulpit, I challenge you, have you responded or have you chosen to harden your heart? So, Paul preaches the gospel first to the Jew. But having done so, he then turns and says he's going to then preach the gospel to the Gentile. Verses 28 to 31. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. This doesn't mean as some have claimed that Paul gave up on the Jews or stopped preaching to them. But rather, he recognized that in the face of their rejection, he had an obligation to go also to the Gentiles, as the Lord had commissioned him to do. So, Paul remains under God, chained to the soldier. He can't leave his rented accommodation, but for this two-year period, other people come to where he stays, where he's rented some accommodation, and we see the people he welcomed, all who came to see him. Again, it'd be wonderful. Uh, we've got we've got a visitors book in our house, but the only trouble is we always forget to get people to sign it. But if Paul had, had a visitors book in those two years in Rome, we'd just love to know the people that came to see him. But we know at least one who came to see him. If you know the Bible well, you know who he was: a runaway slave called Philemon, who'd run away from his Christian master to get away, came to Rome, met with Paul, came to faith, and Paul sent him back home with a letter. The letter to Philemon that's in our New Testament. He's one among the many people that Paul welcomed into his home. Notice then the people he welcomed, but also the message he proclaimed. He preached about the kingdom of God and talked about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's message, like that of Jesus, who came saying, Repent, the kingdom of God has arrived. His message was focused on something bigger than just personal salvation. He said, God's got a kingdom. And that kingdom is being fulfilled with the arrival of His Son, Jesus the Messiah. So, He teaches about Jesus. He preaches about the kingdom. And the kingdom is going out into all the world. The kingdom of God is at hand. If you were with us right at the beginning of this series, in the opening chapter, the, the disciples asked the risen Lord Jesus before He ascended into heaven, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1, verse 6. Jesus said, that's not your business. Your business is empowered by the Holy Spirit to be as witnesses to the ends of the earth. And as the gospel goes out, as it is received and people respond to it, so the kingdom grows person by person, step by step. So Luke's book concludes with Paul fulfilling that commission in Rome. Yes, all roads lead to Rome in the ancient world, but all roads lead from Rome to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel has arrived, as it were, at the gates to the end of the world. Let's just say something in conclusion. I want to suggest that as we come to the end of Acts, there is an end and also a beginning. There's been a lot of scholarly debate about why Luke finishes his story here. Some people think it's rather abrupt. Why doesn't he talk about what happened when Paul came to trial before Caesar? let alone what probably happened, that he was released, and then preached elsewhere for a couple of years, then was rearrested and finally executed in the Nero. Some have suggested that Paul was planning a third volume. We don't know that. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. Instead, I think there's good evidence that Luke intended to finish the story here. Lloyd Ogilvie, the American uh, pastor who was one time chaplain of the U- US Senate, Uh, in his little book on Acts, comments, the abrupt ending leaves us with the challenge and opportunity to allow the Spirit to write the next chapter in Acts today in us and through us. There is an Acts 29, which is being carried out today throughout the world. How do we do this? Well, like Paul, I would suggest to you, in fact, I would urge you to consider that our priority is the way this happens is always preaching the gospel. In the original Greek of Luke, uh, the last two words are not the last two words as they are in English in verse 31. Uh, the final two words of Luke's gospel are these. First of all, indicating how we are to preach. It's the word boldly. Uh, again, John Stott tells us the definition boldly denotes speech which is candid, with no concealment of truth, clear, with no obscurity of expression, and confident, with no fear of consequences. And when we do that, the last word in Acts, in the original, tells us when we are to preach, without hindrance. It's just one word in the original. It doesn't mean there'll never be any opposition to the gospel. Paul experienced that in full measure. No, it means we will not allow any hindrances to stand in our way to prevent us from preaching the gospel. The gospel, the story of Acts, ends with the gospel being preached by Paul boldly, without fear, but also without hindrance. Stop comments. Though his hand was chained, his mouth was still open for Jesus. Though he was chained, the word of God was not. And when we make it our priority to preach the gospel boldly and without hindrance, as a church, we will prove, as Paul and the other apostles did prove, that God fulfills his promise that we will receive the power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth and to the end of the age. That is God's promise that he will fulfill as we respond in obedience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing record of the Acts of the Apostles. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, beginning in Jerusalem to the end of the ages. We've spent this year studying how it happened. We recognize it wasn't an even or easy process. That like as your people were resistant to change, to move. And yet you spurred them on, even sometimes through persecution and difficulty you ensured that the gospel message went out to the ends of the world. Finding reach the great heart of the Roman Empire and its capital city. And we, as it were, take up that same commission as a church and as individual Christians. We pray that our verse for the year may not be just some kind of Bumper sticker for our lives, but really a reality for us as individuals and as a church to witness in the power of the Spirit the kingdom of God and to teach and preach about the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed is the King, King of kings and Lord of lords to the ends of the earth and to the very end of the age. Thank you for his promise to be with us always. May we rely on his promise depend on his power, and may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.